This morning, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a model for helping each other in the faith. There's lots to talk about in these two passages, but I'm going to try to focus us on um, really the conversation uh, that happens between Philip and the Ethiopian. We often over-complicate. We often over-require. And I think we often don't do enough encouraging. We, and I mean, when I say we, I mean Christians. <laughs> we so often talk too much about what someone has to do or what the church needs to do or what the church is lacking. And I'll give you some I'll give you an example or a couple of examples. We need to pray more. Okay, that's that's true. But does saying this help people hear the gospel? We need to get out there and we need to serve others and we need to do that more. Yes, that's true. But does this help people remember the gospel? We need to be generous in our giving, absolutely. But you get the picture. The more we focus on those things, the more we say those things, I think the more we sometimes forget the gospel. So here, here's the model that's in this story from Acts. The model actually starts with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prompts. Then there's an opportunity for Philip and a conversation that happens. And then what comes out of that is action and discipleship. That's the Ethiopian getting baptized. So the first part is the prompting by the Holy Spirit. The movement in this story, you'll notice, is God moves, the Holy Spirit does something that prompts Philip to take action, and then the, the good news is proclaimed to the Ethiopian who has not yet heard it. So the movement is from God through Philip to the Ethiopian. And Philip is given steps by the Holy Spirit and certainly is not given the whole picture at all. We sometimes as Christians, Christians want the whole picture. We want to see the end result. But that's not what we get. We usually get one step or two steps. So all that happens to Philip is he feels that the Holy Spirit is telling him, go to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That's all he gets. And he goes. He sees a chariot. And he something within him, the text tells us, it's the, the spirit again. Go and join it. Go and join that chariot. Or the New International Version says, stay near it. And he does that as well. So this is the, the prompting. And then when Philip gets near to the chariot, he hears the Ethiopian reading the prophet Isaiah. And so we find out right away just from this that uh, the Ethiopian is a God-fearer. He believes in God, but he does not know about Jesus. So he would say, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in God. He'd gone down to Jerusalem for the religious pilgrimage, but he likely is not a Jew, um, but is interested in the Jewish religion and believes in the same God, but does not yet know about Jesus. 
Today, we might say he's spiritual, but not religious. Lots of people out there. Does that sound familiar? People who say, I believe in God, but they don't really know Jesus. They, they might about Jesus, but they don't really know Jesus. Does that sound familiar? So that's part, just the spirit or by God's angel is, is mentioned as well. The second part is opportunity and conversation. Philip has a choice. He can believe that the spirit has sent him there and he obey and go and do it or he can walk away. When he hears uh, the man reading from the prophet Isaiah, he, Philip could just ignore that. But he sees an opportunity and he steps into that opportunity. He says, do you understand what you are reading? So Philip does the initiating, but it's a pretty open-ended initiating, isn't it? He doesn't hear the prophet and he doesn't jump to, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Right? He asks a question and enters into a conversation with him. So he does the initiating, but it's not jumping straight to the gospel. And at that point, the Ethiopian could say, well, who are you? Get out of here. And, or like he waits, Philip waits for him to engage. And the Ethiopian does engage. He says, well, how can I understand unless somebody guides me? And then he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. So this is really interesting because notice who does the inviting. It's not the Christian in the story. Right? It's the other in the story who does the inviting. So Philip does some initiating, prompted by the Holy Spirit. He goes through the steps and asks a kind of an open-ended question. But it's the Ethiopian who says, oh, come on, I, I want to learn. So there's a real opportunity here. And then the Ethiopian has the question, after he's reading it, is this text about the prophet who wrote it, or is it about someone else? I mean, the, the initiator in the conversation really is the Ethiopian. Then we find out that Philip then, from that reading, proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. Basically, he answered his question. Well, this text is about Jesus, and I'm going to show you how. We don't get the whole conversation of what happened. And then after that, so that's sort of the opportunity in the conversation, then there's action and discipleship. The Ethiopian sees water and stops the chariot and asks to be baptized, and Philip baptizes him. Again, notice who initiates the action. Philip doesn't tell him to get baptized. Philip doesn't tell him to do anything. Philip proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus, and then the Ethiopian took action. Now, the proclamation of good news about Jesus is about grace. Philip does not point to any requirements. Philip does not point toward the challenge of faith or to any change that the Ethiopian must make in his life. Philip does not point to the commitment of discipleship. He doesn't tell the Ethiopian to pray more or to serve better or to give more money to the temple. And the reason Philip doesn't do any of those things is because Philip doesn't have any rules to share. He has something else to share. He has news to share. Good news. The gospel, that's what the gospel means, good news. And we need to understand the contrast between law 
and gospel. We've heard this before. And many of us make this about works and grace, or works and faith. And technically that's correct. We are not saved on the basis of our works, but on the basis of God's grace, which is appropriated in faith. The problem is, is that we don't take the time to understand the vast difference between law and gospel. They don't even function in the same way. And so what we tend to do as Christians is we'll, we will turn faith into a work. Okay, so we'll say that works don't save you, but then we'll turn believing in Jesus into a work that we must do. So we'll say that there is nothing that you have to do to earn salvation. Well, except one thing. There is one thing that you must do, and that is you must believe in Jesus. Okay. But from there, it's all too easy to then pile on all kinds of religious works, exactly as the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. And, and we'll say, you know what, without fruit, without evidence, to, without something external that we can see, well, your faith is not really there or it's deficient, that without a commitment to prayer and without reading the Bible, without faithful attendance at church, without service, without giving, well, you, if you don't have those things, then you probably don't really have faith. Because if you had true faith in Christ, all of that fruit would be evident. And so you better get on doing all of those things as evidence of a life of faith. You must be this kind of way. You must do these kinds of things in order to be saved. And we might even take the passage from John's gospel that we heard as evidence for this kind of thinking. That Jesus is the vine and we are the branches and any branch that does not bear fruit, it's cut off. But the problem is, is the whole focus of the message in John is not on our need to make sure we are producing fruit as evidence for our faith. The whole focus on the passage is that what we need to do is abide in Jesus. The focus of the passage is, is not on make sure you produce fruit and figure out how to do that. It's abide in Jesus and fruit will come. If you don't see fruit evident in your life, the solution is not to work harder to try and produce it. The solution is to look to Jesus and abide in him. The solution, here again, the good news, because you've probably forgotten it. We generally do not take the time to understand what the gospel is and why it is so different from a law. Now, God gave his people a law as a good gift. The law, it's just so, it's so much easier for us to get our heads around what the law is. Because the law tells you what is right and what is wrong. It guides you. It shows you what you shouldn't do. And it instructs you in what you should do. That's easy to get your head around. The gospel doesn't behave that way at all. The gospel is good news. It doesn't teach you what to do or what not to do. Now, even though Christians do it all the time, we ought not summarize the gospel like this. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. That's not a particularly good summary of the gospel. The statement may very well be true, but that statement is not the gospel because it's not news. That statement is not news. It's a directive, right? It's telling you what you should do. You should believe in Jesus. And if you follow that rule or that directive or even that law, 
of believing in Jesus, then you will inherit salvation. It's setting up an if-then statement. That's what the law does. But that's not the gospel. Because the gospel is not a law. The gospel is not a directive. The gospel is news. And news just doesn't behave like law. News works completely differently. Well, what does news do? Well, news points to an event that is newsworthy. Big news points to an event that changes history. News, especially big news, changes us, and often that change is in an instant. Law operates in the realm of should and should not. News doesn't operate that way at all. News tells you something that you did not know before and leaves you changed because of it. Uh, my mom shared with me the other day that she was interviewed by uh, her niece. I don't know if this was Rebecca, maybe, her niece. Um, she, asked her, uh, she asked her to pick the most significant news item from her lifetime. My mom is uh, uh, older than I am. So <laughs> I'm going to tell you how old she is. You can guess. And uh, I guess this was part of a, a school project or something like that. And, and uh, my mom chose the assassination of John F. Kennedy Jr. So now you can start to work out. If I was asked that question, I might pick the terrorist attacks of September 11th. These kinds of events, they change how we see the world. These events have the potential to change how we live our lives even. And news also always has a context, right? Like if you just say JFK was shot and you don't know who JFK is, well, it doesn't matter. So you've got to have the context. He was the president. His family is essentially American royalty. His presidency was really significant as well, right, at a significant time in not just American history but world history. News creates its own response in people, right? 9-11 caused grief and shock, but it also caused new resolve. 9-11 opened many eyes to, to see terrorism like they hadn't quite seen before and, and to try to uh, see the threat of fundamentalism. The gospel is in that kind of category, but even bigger. The gospel is big news, and there is a context that we have to know. There's a whole backstory, and fortunately, we're given that backstory in Scripture. There's also a response to hearing the news to when we really take it in. And I think the root of our problem is not about getting our response right. It's fundamentally just forgetting the good news or forgetting that it is news, because we've heard it all before. But when we live out our lives, we live out our lives as though this event didn't happen, as though we've forgotten the good news. So we'll walk through our lives and we'll think, I'm struggling, why is this happening to me? Or things aren't going well, why did I make such mistakes this past year? Or I keep praying, but it doesn't seem to work. Or I just can't pray anymore, and I feel guilty about it, and 
I don't know what to do, or I'm struggling with this particular sin and I just can't seem to break out of it, or I just cannot understand why a good God would let such bad things happen like wars and earthquakes and famine and persecution. Well, into all of this stuff, God speaks the good news. Jesus is risen. The crucified Savior, he's risen, so he still saves. The crucified God now reigns because he is risen, and the defeat of the powers of sin and death are assured. We need to stop making this into a formula or a law for for our own personal salvation and simply hear it as a proclamation of the real truth of the way things are against what the world tells us is the real truth about the way things are. God says, no, he is risen. Things aren't going well for me, but have you heard the news? He's risen. I just can't pray anymore and I feel guilty, but, but remember the news. He's risen. I'm struggling in sin and I can't break out of it. Uh, don't, don't forget the news. He's risen. Why does God let such terrible things happen? I don't have a great answer for that, but have you heard the news? He's risen. What's amazing about this news is that its first response that it builds in us, our automatic response to it is hope. When things seem hopeless, we can still dare to hope because of the gospel. This isn't the kind of big news that tears down or plunges us into despair. This is the big news that creates hope in us. That this news opens up possibility. He is risen. Now, now that that's great, but we all want, we all want something to do, right? <laughs> We all want something to do. We all want, you know, give us the ten steps or the three things. and We have those in the Old Testament, Ten Commandments. We all want to be told, if you believe this news, that's the thing you've got to do. Believe the news, and then you'll get salvation. I'd rather tell you today that if we really want something to do, that what we need to do is that that we need to remind each other not of a formula for salvation, but remind one another of the news itself. If you want something to do, remind one another of the news itself. When Philip heard the Ethiopian reading Isaiah out loud, he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian had the wisdom to say, can I, unless someone guides me? Most of us probably would have just said, uh, yeah, when we really did it. And then he invited Philip up to guide him. And Philip proclaimed to him the good news. He didn't lay requirements on him. He just told him the truth about Jesus that this man did not know. We know it, but we forget it. And so we need to do that for one another, what Philip did for that Ethiopian man that day. 
When we are down or when we feel like a failure, when we're discouraged, when we're angry or upset, when things haven't gone our way, what we need is we need to guide each other. So if you want something to do, proclaim to each other the good news. We need to remind each other of this life-changing event because we forget it. It's funny how we know it and we think we believe it, but we forget about it so easily in our lives. So we must depend on each other for our building up and hope. He is risen. We need to tell each other. We need to remember for each other. And this is not only my job. It's up to all of you. In fact, my best gift is not in the one-on-one -on -one conversation like Philip and the Ethiopian had. My gift is not the one that Philip displayed. But there are those of you here in, the, in this room whose gift is the one-on-one -on -one conversation. So do not forget to guide each other, to help each other in faith. Don't give each other rules and requirements. Point each other to Jesus. Remind each other of the good news. He is risen. This is God's ultimate message against everything that would drag us down. This gospel is our most powerful tool to build hope in our hearts. Take the time to build each other up with hope. Share the good news. Share with each other that he is risen. Amen.